I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Calmer Cornheads. For more information about Calmer Cornheads, visit them at calmercornheads.com. That's C-A-L-M-E-R-C-O-R-N-H-E-A-D-S.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Back in the 1970s, Guy Swanson, along with his father Mort, developed the yielder drill and other specialized equipment in order to seed no-till crops on the steep, dry hills of the Palouse area in the Pacific Northwest. The extremely heavyweight yielder drills were used to no-till a variety of grain, pulse, and forage crops while dramatically reducing erosion. In this podcast, no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Guy Swanson about how the yielder drill was developed and ways in which it was modified over the years, how fertilizer placement played a big role in its design, and how the Conservation Reserve Program actually led to its eventual decline. They also talk about how the yielder drill helped build the Denver airport, why Guy advocates long crop rotations, the advantages of no-till, and much more. So Guy, you and your dad and the whole family farmed for many years in the Palouse. Can you tell our listeners a little about what makes the Palouse different than any other place in North America? Or the world, Frank. Uh, It's the Cascade Volcanoes and the Pacific Push. It's the Gulf of Alaska that generates all these fabulous storms that make hydropower here. So the Palouse Hills formed up geologically, basically ended their formation at the end of the glaciers, which was about 20,000 years ago. We ought to tell our listeners where the Palouse is geographically. Can you explain that? Well, yeah, it's a general area. It's termed to be Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. So if you're familiar more with, like, towns, it would be uh, old Ritzville and uh, Pullman and Moscow, Idaho. Lewiston, Idaho is part of it, of course. And then out in the Columbia Basin, Walla Walla is the big farming area. Uh, it was the pioneer farming area at one time. And then on to, like, Ione, Oregon, and back up to Yakima, Tri-Cities, Pasco, Kennewick, uh, Richland. So what makes farming different in the Palouse? you got steep slopes. you got huge uh, depths of topsoil. Well, when you're a boy, it's all normal. You don't know (laughs) anything different, you know. But uh, in actuality, the country was tackled uh, by the pioneers, in a very different manner than what it is today. They only farmed the low-lying areas, the areas that were not steep, and then the the rolling tops and um, the toe slopes, so to speak, uh, they were uh, turned to alfalfa or grassland for grazing. And those those slopes are up to um, oh, 65% compound angles. So overall planning of the country it was a cattle country initially, and... Uh, then the soils were so deep and so productive, and these lowland areas produced so well that they just kept inching it up right to the top of the hill. So there was no uh, steam power, tractors, you know, initially. It was all done with horses. And by about 1925, caterpillars started to make a, a little bit of an inroad, and then um, they started going up on the slope. So that it's the tractor 
itself that actually was responsible for getting up on those really steep slopes. Uh, these tractors w- were able to manipulate plows, and then it all went into production. About 1930, I think almost all of it, at one time or another, had a plow sunk into it. So, Frank, it wasn't a pretty sight. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of optimism about it, and there was not much conservation effort. So that's the end of that era, about 1930. And then the new era was the diesel engine and the advanced thrashing capabilities that came along. So when you get on really steep ground, you have to lay it out a lot differently. Winston Mater said one time to me, he says, you know, guy, they would arrest you in Kansas for driving like this. <laughs> and they think you were drunk or gone nuts. And so a lot of the slopes were laid out with back swaths and means to get the combines in. And the seating was done in the 30s with horses, and then the tillage was done with uh, tractors. So the Swanson family's been farming there more than 100 years, right? That's correct. My granddad, uh, my great-granddad, both came out of Nebraska in 1900. They had had it with the hail and the tornadoes. And uh, mm-hmm. they had a little Swedish buddy up here in uh, Washington State that wrote him a nice letter. His name was Gus Linden. He confirmed there had been no tornadoes or no, no hail. The ground's a little, it's great for cattle and grazing and grain production. It rolls pretty good. And so the letter prompted them to sell that farm at Wahoo, Nebraska. And then they, of course, rode the rails on out. I don't know if it was Union Pacific or the today's Burlington Northern, but somehow they got to Washington State on rail and got settled in. And he built a barn. He built, his first building was, the, the house was there. It's a brand new house. But he built a barn, a fantastic barn, and we still have that today. It's an octagon barn, and it had three or four levels, a great place to play when you're a boy. It always had that sweet smell of alfalfa. And that's where I learned how to shovel manure was in that barn. At age six, I was convinced that was not the future. (laughs) While we think no-till got started in the 60s, you told me once that your great-grandfather had uh, seeded wheat into pea ground as early as 1928. That is correct, Frank. In about that timeline, uh, stationary thrashers uh, were utilized, and they did have steam engines to run the stationary thrashers. So they would rake and bring in the peas, uh, complete with the vines, And that left the ground quite barren, and harvests were a lot later in those days. And so it was much more functional to not do any tillage at all and um, just use a set of hoe drills, and uh, they moved. It might have been single disc, too. I'm not absolutely confirmed on whether it was a single disc drill or a double disc drill or a hoe drill. But they were able to go right into the pea ground and establish winter wheat. So it wasn't continuous no-till. But it was the beginnings of finding a better way to get the crop up and going. I don't think there was any true, true no-till until, you know, year after year after year, until the, in our particular case, until about 1973, 74. And then that's when the dynamo was on because we knew about Roundup and the fact it was coming. Through WSU and some scientists there, they were coaching Mort because he was a commercial applicator. He knew all the chemicals and the formulations. When you say Mort, that was your dad, who is now deceased. But the two of you kind of took a look at what was happening in the 60s, and there was a lot of erosion, and you figured you had to find some way of solving that problem, didn't you? It was very serious. 
what happened is commercial fertilizer drove out the alfalfa rotation. And so those steep uh, slopes were no longer in alfalfa and or grass. And so with that happening, it was better to just get rid of the cows and buy a lake cabin and uh, farm everything uh, using uh, a supplement such as anhydrous ammonia. And these applicators were not single disc like we know today. They were all shank type machines and they could not go through much residue. So Mm -hmm. it was a plow deal. And there was at least six to 10 operations before the crop was actually put into production. The seriousness of it uh, became really apparent because about that time, Uh, The tractors got repowered and bigger plows and higher speeds, and then they basically just tore it apart. Some some farms were actually plowed every second year, and uh, there's even farmers that would plow pea ground. It was uh, a a very bad time because the weather patterns were shifting, and there was uh, some giant storms that came in that allowed snow to accumulate very deeply. And then the March runoff, it just took it right to the tillage line. And there's some pretty dynamic pictures where the Soil Conservation Service knew that the problem was serious. Uh, Of course, the other thing that happened was the Snake River dams were ready to go, and the Columbia River dams were already in. And so siltation of those uh, pools of water behind those dams is really a serious problem. And they wanted to navigate all the way uh, to Lewiston, Idaho, and haul uh, grain back to the Pacific coast. And it was just so powerful that we wouldn't have to build a bunch more railroads or be involved in big highway expansion programs. It was all done with barges and dams. And as we all know, it's a much safer way, much more economical way to move commodities. And uh, so Lewiston, Idaho, at 780 feet, actually above sea level, actually became a seaport. And um, the the days of water skiing on the Snake River on a free-flowing river, they were over. We had pools uh, of water, reservoirs to ski on. And, of course, as you and I both know, that's the entrance to Hell's Canyon. We've been up there, very primordial up in there. They now have found an Indian artifact site up there that's the oldest in the nation. I think it's 16,000 years old in the Salmon River country. So it's a very protected area and very beautiful as you uh, travel through the Northwest. It was a very important factor in bringing the dams in, but yet saving a lot of soil. Something had to be done. So federal money started showing up, and I think it was a really smart move. First time I met your dad must have been 73 or 74, and you had had a career with Caterpillar as an engineer, but about in those early 70s, you came back to the Palouse area, didn't you? And you guys kind of got the idea there needed to be a better way of seeding no-till crops. Well, like most things, you can claim you got a great education at a major land-grant school, but it all came from Mort. (laughs) (laughs) He had been a navigator in World War II, so he was a real smart guy. He actually had a couple of brothers that were professors, and so I had to live amongst these highly educated people. And I learned a lot in the 60s, and then Mort and I got really intense on no-till, and it was very very controversial. The reasoning was that it would just be impossible to do that. The ground will get too hard. You won't be able to plant a crop. That was coming out of a land-grant school. 
the residue is going to stack up two, three feet high. You know, it just you just couldn't raise winter wheat like that, and peas and lentils. And the understandings of all this came from wisdom of many years of commercial application in various uh, landscapes across the Palouse country. And Mort felt very confident that we could do it no-till continuously. So, like all things, you know, you always have rough starts, but it's the finish that counts. And we didn't understand that the fertilizer had to be banded deep in the soil. That was the first thing that WSU came out with. Great scientists there with the Agricultural Research Service, as well as WSU, had concluded that banding would be better. And so our top dressing designs were producing good yields, but they're also producing good weeds. So the weed problem just got way out of control. Uh, We were using ammonium nitrate and then later on urea. And uh, so that early trip that we made from 1973, 74, up to about 1979, that was all top dressing. And so that's when you first met Mort. We were building a pretty big machine at the time. We sold the rights off to a company to build it. And then uh, eventually that machine did not perform well enough. And so they were decommissioned. And that's when the Pioneers and the Yielder drills got started about 1980. The original drill was called like the Old Yeller. Old Yeller, yeah. Old Yeller's parked down at the farm. Uh, my sister uh, lives right at the farm, and my nephew is the farmer. And so he has a father-in-law that's also a big no-till farmer, and that's Roger Pennell. He was able to put together a very nice relationship. So Doug has now become a, a pretty good-sized no-till farmer for the area. At that timeline, we look at the Old Yeller, it was pretty unique. It was, you know, a lot of people just were so impressed with it. And yet this is 1973. So <laughs> it was written up quite often. A lot of people talk about it. Yeah. So what was the original width of the old yeller? It was about 12 foot 9 inch. Whatever 9 divides into 12 foot 9, I think that's maybe 15, 16 openers, something like that. And they were aligned side by side, and nine inch in the subframe work uh, was just perfect. The actual interesting part of the story is that the the openers were built from old plow coulters. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the plow got reinvented into the openers because they had Timken bearings in the coulters, and they could take a lot of side loading. Plus, they had a, a very unique design where Mark could steepen the angle. And as we worked in our, we had a very nice uh, fancy shop with all the tooling needed. We had built a lot of machinery. This was just another little side trip for us. So we put that opener together as he began to understand how he could steepen the angle and get it to meter seed. It was his experience that really brought on the opener. So it was an offset leading opener, 22-inch diameter, Timken bearings, had a seed tube that released the seed directly into the blades, and then the blades would meter the seed right into the slot. And so there's no seed bounce. It was actually a final meter delivery right at the uh, blades. And uh, you'd find lentils that had been seeded with the drill, and they were standing up perfectly vertical in the slot because of that metering blade design. 
we cut straw well, and uh, we could control depth well because we had a positive down pressure system on it. We had hydraulic cylinders on each opener that would apply that pressure and keep it consistent. And that was really my contribution to the design was to get rid of springs and actually do it with hydraulic cylinders. So we went back and forth and and getting the machine together. It didn't get done in time. It was early October. We were about a month behind schedule. Went to the field, seeded the crop, and about five more neighbors wanted the same treatment. Went with late programs, had good crops, really good crops, outstanding, in fact. So, you know, the conclusion of that scenario was that it did take a specialized machine to do it because it had to be slope-stable. And so the end wheels on the drill were actually off of a hillside combine. The tires and final drives had been implemented onto the drill to give it slope stability. And it would just cruise right around those steep Palouse hills and just hold that seed position just perfect. It also had a front box on it for the dry fertilizer. I think it held, if I remember right, 8,000 pounds seed box held about 65 bushel, and then the uh, starter uh, box, which was for 1620, 014S, that starter box held about half that amount, about 3,200 pounds, I think, was in that back box. And we had monitors on it so we could see what was going on with all the deliveries, making sure everything was working perfectly. Mort says, well, there's nothing wrong with 12 foot 9. It's, It's not really much different than a plow. So he was totally content with that width, and it was enough. I mean, when you're experimenting and trying to prove it all out, you know, width is not always your best friend because you have a lot of mechanism to figure out, and you may have to go backwards. So um, there was a lot of thought process that went into Old Yeller, and uh, it continued to run up into the 80s. Farmers that wanted to seed grassland or, you know, real tough seeding conditions, they would uh, uh, procure old yeller and and, uh, reseed grassland with it. And uh, eventually it was, in fact, converted to 18-inch spacing. series of duff scuffers went across the front and cleared the path for the seed openers so you could raise wheat on wheat. And uh, that was a real driving force in no-till as you could come back so fast and get back into winter cropping. And eventually that all fell on its face because of the top dress fertilizer. It mm-hmm. just didn't work. So I kind of shiver and shake uh, when I get out on the Great Plains today and I see floater rigs putting on fertilizer and they trying to no-till. And I know that the fertilizer is being lost in the environment or I know that the weeds have got it. So fertilizer placement, I don't know of anybody that would even attempt it today without placing fertilizer in the deck. So that era of Old Yeller was probably where you and Mort got most acquainted, Frank. And uh, right. and then that was deliverance because from there on, it was the Yielder Pioneers. So talk to us later. You you built Yielder drills. Tell us what, what a typical Yielder drill might be, what the width would be, what the weight would be, et cetera. Okay. The, the machine, uh, by that time, the concept, uh, again, changed. You know, we wrote down all our criteria, what we wanted in a machine, and then we implemented the blueprints, made all the drawings, ordered all the parts, and uh, started on the first two machines. Those machines weighed in at about twenty-five to 30,000 pounds, depending on their configuration. Sure. They had spacings of seven and a half inch, and then banders out in front of those rows were 15 inch centers. 
and then they were going in deeper with the fertilizer. We'd been entertained uh, by Cominco American that, you know, quite possibly urea would really be the best choice. And so uh, we got off on a urea tangent initially, but our design criteria was to use anhydrous ammonia and also aqua ammonia in the designs. So uh, Mort and I both began to understand fertilizers and how to move fertilizers, how to get it banded into the ground, uh, what was the real economic effect of all these different types. And um, eventually, uh, that big box out in front, which by now on the yielder was about 10,000 pounds in stainless steel, that big box was not required as we began to understand that anhydrous ammonia was absolutely superior if we could tame it. Ammonia is a very difficult product to work with with double disc openers. It just was a continuous case of trying to figure out how can we make these double disc openers really work with that ammonia. So the, the nutrients were hidden deeper in the soil, and Glenn Lorang of uh, the Farm Journal came out and wrote an article sure, about pear right. Yeah, Glenn Lorang, what a great guy. You know, it's kind of like a lot of farm editors, they can really change your career. You, you don't realize what's going on when they write about it. He had written this article about paired row. I just stumbled into it by mistake, and and uh, Mort was running his machine on 15-inch centers, and I was running on uh, seven and a half. I had a couple openers go into a tile line, and they got bent around. And by golly, I just stumbled into it. You can move that fertilizer very close to the seed rows, or vice versa. You can move the seed rows very close to the bands. We got uh, some punch out of that. Good yield punch. And we got some weed control. So once again, we fed the wheat and starved the weeds. So I think that was the title of the article. But the root systems of the wheat were able to get into those bands and actually trap it so that uh, weeds like uh, cheatgrass, wild oats, some tough winter annuals could not find those bands of fertilizer. And uh, it led to many more discoveries. You probably heard me talk about uh, rotational band loading and uh, as we progressed across the Columbia Basin and uh, the Plus country, and even uh, up into Canada and North Dakota was another big market. Paso Robles, California was another big market. We began to understand that you could find the old bands in following crops. Mm-hmm. And so no-till had this unique advantage that fertilizer efficiency went through the roof because you can maintain old bands, you, the, the calcium in the soil wouldn't tie up the phosphate. So in wheat production, there must be a balance of MPK and S, and so phosphate's a big player. And one of my uh, teachers uh, was Roger Wilson at uh, WSU, and he, he more or less says, you, guy, you figure out phosphate, and then everything else will follow. That's the story today, is that it's phosphate efficiency determines all the other nutrients' performance. Most uh, scientists will say, well, you can add a lot of nitrogen and this will mask or cover this problem or take care of that. Well, if you really want to take care of the problem, follow the root of phosphate, how it gets into the plant, and then nitrogen will come right along with it and potassium and sulfur, and then the micronutrients as needed and So in a progression of understanding, the yielder was very big. Um, It got even bigger. We made them all the way up to 40 feet. They had a tremendous amount of respect 
for their ability to raise top-yielding crops. And I think today, uh, Yielder Drill still maintains a record in dryland production at Walla Walla. We had a production, I think, in 1989 or 1990. The field-wide average was 165 bushels per acre in dryland production at Walla Walla. This would be wheat? What kind of wheat? It would be winter wheat, and I can't remember the variety. Most likely it was Stevens, which was bred at Oregon State. On pea ground, you know, really it's a great place to put wheat. Yeah, that was quite a deal. It was actually at Waitsburg, uh, Washington. Pat McConnell, I think, was the producer. Uh, Winston Mater often commented about this record yield that had Mm. been produced. On and on and on with many more events in spring grains, we were really good, mainly because we'd get the proteins up uh, with paired row techniques. So we, if we needed to develop a good protein wheat, you know, at 14% protein for milling wheats, paired row was very powerful. So what yeah. happened to the yielders? You build them for a number of years, then they kind of faded away. Well, it was our old buddy, the federal government, that really put the... <laughs> Still going on today, by the way, Frank. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, we uh, the second semester, we had a little manifesto from David Stockman, and he was bent to disassemble American agriculture. So we had CRP come in, which uh, was really a way to certainly cut back the supply and conserve the land, but it also dried up these little farming communities. And in the year before that hit, we had sold maybe like 65 machines in 1985 went out the door. And they went primarily into those areas that were very low rainfall. And they went into CRP and machines they had paid, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for immediately were for sale because they had an irrigated farm in the lower elevations and then their dry farms were up on the slopes. And so they just hung her up on the dry farms and, and went to the irrigated production and put these machines up for sale. It was just darn difficult there for about five, six years. You just could not do it. Then in about 1991, 92, we started again and uh, went for about four or five years building track machines. And then uh, it, it became uh, difficult again. And that's when we re-implemented the whole program revolved next around uh, utilization and high efficiency of fertilizer and so that started about 1998. We'll rejoin Frank and Guy in a moment but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor Calmer Cornheads for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Why pay the high price for a new cornhead when you can yield better results at a fraction of the cost by upgrading your current head with Palmer Cornhead's BT Chopper stock rolls. As the only stock roll in the industry with a patented feeding chamber in combination with 10 razor-sharp knives, BT Chopper's cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for faster decomposition, easier planting, and higher yields. Solve your cornhead problems for good and place your order today by calling 309-629-9000 or visit their website at calmercornheads.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. The question has come up about the impact that anhydrous ammonia will have on your earthworms in your no-till fields. Purdue University agronomist Eileen Kovetko says that while anhydrous ammonia kills worms that it comes in direct contact with, this likely has a very small impact on a field-scale basis. 
Anhydrous is typically injected in row middles, maybe every 30 inches, so this chemical will only kill few worms found directly in the injection shank zone. Her research suggested it's a small percent of the population, probably less than 10%, and that the worm populations where anhydrous ammonia is used are not necessarily low. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank and Guy. So is the paired row thing still around today in the drills and planters we got or not? Absolutely. They do it both in discs, disc seeding, whether it's single disc or double disc, and they do it in shank. Also, they develop what's called paired row stealth series openers for grain producers across North America. So there's actually uh, two rows that are dedicated to one deep band. You know, it's a very successful uh, approach. Shanks are very nice, much better than what we originally had. They have a lot of carbide and chrome on them, and so these guys can cover a tremendous amount of acres and still maintain that integrity, that separation uh, between the ammonia and the polyphos and the thiosols. It's all uh, positioned geometrically so that uh, the seed does not get into the band. And the single disc uh, designs are... Um, very common now, and uh, where shank machines cannot climb straight up and down these steep blues hills because they tear it up too much, the single disc can. And so producers that use single disc openers generally run straight AB lines across those steep blues hills, and we call them hill climbers. So you'll see a big old muscled up 600 horsepower quad track pulling a 30-foot drill. And yet, that 30-foot drill and quad track will outcompete a, a 60-foot drill, mainly because it's not turning and or batched out in little uh, parcels. And uh, when you get rid of the turning, then the fertilizer efficiency goes way up, and then, of course, the seeding efficiency goes way up. And then uh, when you cut it with a combine, it's phenomenal when you look at the stubble and how uniform the stubble is on these steep slopes. So, and top yields, the yield monitor tells you that, too. You probably have seen some of the pictures I've seen of Eric Odberg. Sure. I Genesee, heard. Idaho. And he goes, he's one of your awardees for nutrient management, in fact. Right. And right. our system was developed, so our Xactric system was developed, so he can go straight up and down those hills. He can slow clear down to two miles an hour. It still keeps metering very, very accurately. And then yet he can go up to six, seven miles an hour on the backside of the slope. So we get absolute uniformity across the width of the machine. And then the actual per acre rate going up that steep ground as you slow down, those valves just respond instantaneously. And we have a hydraulic lock of ammonia right to the injection point. And so you get this absolute 1% uh, coefficient of variation. The uniformity across the machine is maintained at all ground speeds. The um, net effect of this is that uh, there's a place for shank openers, there's a place for single disc. Presently, uh, we do both shank opener arrangements with exact bricks, and we also do single disc banding units, and we build the big Mustangs. And as we started out, Frank, you know, we thought we had to put all the fertilizer on with the machine at time of seeding. Because the timing was perfect, and this was some of the objection from the fertilizer people. They didn't want it, mainly because they like a much broader window. It's all going to focus down to about two weeks. It's very similar in corn production. Uh, the whole corn uh, scenario requires nutrients to be applied well ahead, 
And so this spring, of course, that didn't work out so good. But in general, we now have taken a little bit different toe on the Palouse, and we prefer to see the nutrients go on separately from the cedar. And um, this allows us to uh, band into the growing crop as well as pre-plant band. And so winter wheat uh, actually does a little better when we band into the growing winter wheat late in the fall. It gives us just a little more stability um, and a better, a little bit better nutrient uptake because that, that winter wheat crop actually grows through the winter. And uh, once it really takes off in the spring, it's, the bands are there. It's uh, all positioned correctly. The weeds can't find it. So we get even higher levels of nutrient efficiency. So as you probably know, we just keep bringing the rates down from the old university standards uh, we're, we've discovered that there's also the fertilizer industry standard, which is even a jimmied up rate. And in general, we run at about 166% more crop available uh, nitrogen and 200% more crop available P. And that's just because we time it and we single disc it in, and then we get residual bands for uh, future crops. So we get rotational band loading kicking in. To a young farmer, it means a tremendous amount of money. He immediately needs to go to no-till, and he needs to straighten out his nutrient management program, and he can buy, he can pay the mortgage, he can he can buy land. No-till is a real promise. Early on when you had the yielders, you uh, sent some into Idaho. You had a gentleman that was uh, no-tilling 60,000 acres at one time with the yielders, didn't you? Yeah, I bet you. That was John McNabb. Yeah, and uh, his son John Jr. They're at one of the most beautiful farming areas in the world. Uh, the mountains go to ten thousand feet, and uh, he farms from the Great Salt Lake. Uh, at that time, he went right to the Great Salt Lake. The pH got so high, even barley wouldn't grow. It, it was just amazing. I never had seen such a geological phenomena as from that stretch from the Great Salt Lake up to Pocatello, Idaho and up on these giant fields. I mean, these fields were giants. They'd run eight miles, and uh, they'd take up the entire mountain valley, or they'd be up on an Indian reservation that John had actually cleared from sagebrush in the 60s mm-hmm. and put it into production. Now, he is a phenomenal advocate of no-till farming, and uh, he's personally probably saved more soil than anybody on the planet, I would guess, anyway. <laughs> That many acres, you know. Right. You you told me once, and uh, he was planting in May or so, and you were up on a steep slope, and the two of you were standing next to the drill looking down at a ski resort where people were still skiing. Oh, yeah. That's not too far from John's house, and it's a little ski area called Pebble Creek. And, uh, yeah, it was a Memorial Day weekend. He had asked me to come down, take a look at what was going on, and we went right up there, and they were loading he was actually seating above the lower terminal of the ski lift. Uh-huh. And they were loading skiers at the end of the ski season, obviously. <laughs> so it was quite a weekend. And that's a, such a pretty part of the world. You know, it just needed to be no-tilled. And on up, um, we have another high population area for no-till. I think it's still the, the biggest hold Rock solid no till area. It's at Idaho Falls. It's uh-huh. uh, it's it's just darn near 100% no till, and it's spring barley and mustard and spring wheat country. It's pretty high. It's right on the Snake River as it comes out of Jackson Hole. 
another beautiful spot. Lots of great memories of uh, southern Idaho. And even on out into Colorado and parts of Kansas in the 80s, where the first yielders went. And, of course, the price of the machine dictated the quality of the customer. And you always were working with a guy that was a senator or a, a big attorney that had bought a bunch of land. or you know, They're just really interesting to watch how these producers are trying to find a better way to raise crops. And today, it's, it's still the same way. There's just there's some big producers that are looking for a, a better way to raise crops, and it has such a multiplying effect to the bottom line that they can be highly competitive. You mentioned Colorado, and you told me once that they had a dust problem around the New Denver airport, and they were using yielders and no-till to keep the dust under control, weren't they? Absolutely. In fact, Denver Airport did not exist when the machines were purchased. Of course, the Caterpillar dealer had a big interest in that project on Tower Road. And so I was really connected to that from my years at Caterpillar. I knew kind of what was going on. But I'd gotten a phone call from a developer that owned Box Elder Farms. And it overlooked the Rocky Mountains right behind Denver. It's just a beautiful area. And he says, this is where the airport's going to be. And, uh, okay, and uh, <laughs> we need your machine. I says, okay, and uh, and what's the reason? Well, there's so much dust that blows in from these farmers in the area that we know that we cannot have a blowing dust problem at the airport. So we would like to purchase your machine. He actually ended up owning two machines, and today they are parked right there on E-470, right next to the big waste management landfill, and uh, you can see him right from Google Earth. But he did not sell them. He held on to them. They're actually parked right along the interstate, right inside of the airport. <laughs> it was quite a deal. Yeah, and, you know, it wasn't the best place to be farming in the first place. You know, I mean, I mean they probably could have done better with a big pasture, but... They were convinced they needed to farm it, and they had done well in the past, and no-till was the solution. That's a, a little story, a little pieces of the story. There's a lot more personalities involved in that. <laughs> if I told the whole story, it'd take a week, you know? One of the things that seems to happen in the Palouse is they had broad crop rotations. They would have a number of crops. And back in the Midwest, we're kind of stuck on corn and soybeans. What about rotations? Are we going to get to bigger, longer rotations here in the Midwest or not? I think it really is the solution to the problem long-term on the Gulf of Mexico and Lake Erie is that the rotations are just too close and they're not really orientated towards long-term sustainability. And so cover cropping gets to be a little bit of a solution in there. It's, it's kind of a rotation, but not a bottom line type rotation in my book. And uh, I like to see a multiple crops. And um, the, each one plays a, a deep benefit to the next crop. So I think long term where maybe some of our land grants need to put more emphasis and look at it as a business opportunity is let's find um, two or three more crops and let's even find a winter crop so we can diversify and uh, keep that farmer busy around the year. And this is very similar to how Kansas is. Kansas is cropping all the time with uh, maybe up to eight different crops in Kansas. Uh, one farmer I have for a customer has eight different crops. His brother may have seven different crops. 
and it's all just to even out the cash flow. And corn's involved, soybeans is involved, but so is winter canola. And uh, you'll see uh, tremendous business opportunities with alfalfa, where the dairies are close by. They need alfalfa. In general, it all kind of changes, Frank, you know, right at that 100th meridian. Everybody really become farmers, uh, serious farmers, the way it was done, uh, I think, maybe 50, 60, maybe 100 years ago. Hmm. They're raising so many different crops, and it's just better for the land. And I think that's kind of the German approach, too. When I lived in Germany, we had like eight different crops going all the time around the, the areas of Munich and Nuremberg, just a lot of diversity. And so we've kind of overdone it with corn on corn, soybean, corn. Uh, we need a third crop, maybe a winter crop. It would really help out on the profitability if we can get the breeders to find a way to do it. It's just so dominated now that it'll be very difficult to take a look at that third crop. That fourth crop may be real easy because it's kind of like having kids. You know, the first two kids are the difficult part. Man, when you have three, four, five, and six, man, it's really easy to raise kids. Right, right. Yeah. Well, one of the problems I think in the Midwest has been the economics haven't been there for anything other than corn and soybeans. Like people have got wheat, wheat prices were low for a while, and they just don't see the profitability of adding another crop. That's right. And wheat was the problem because it had a disease problem, fusarium head blight. It just couldn't tolerate being around corn. And this is some of the difficulties in North Dakota. In fact, Tom Lux's daughter now is up at North Dakota State, and she is a pathologist, and she's working on fusarium head blight. And it is really a giant problem if you get corn in the rotation. So the high-quality milling wheats come out of North Dakota, and uh, they need to solve this problem. I think they're doing it genetically. I think Purdue worked on it, too. There's uh, two or three plant breeders that are pretty focused on uh, fusarium head blight. But, you know, it might be winter canola, too. You know, I, I'm a big advocate on winter canola, and guys just don't want to take – it takes too much effort to raise it, I think. And then, you know, you got to have a crushing plant, and Rabisco has been working really hard on getting the crushing plants going in Kentucky. And so there's an encroachment. I know that there's winter canola in Illinois. I know it's in Kentucky. We're invaded by cottonseed meal presently in the Great Plains, so the canola acres are way down. But out in the West here, the canola acres are way up. And um, it's because it's a superior crush for the dairies. And then we get that influence out of Alberta on down into Washington State and into California where the crush goes to feed the dairy cows. So there's no very little cottonseed meal in California. So um, three or four crops would really change it. Uh, they'd have to you know, have big, powerful economic punch and so hybridization is what allows corn and soybeans to dominate. And these, these crops are not taking a giant leap ahead other than canola with hybridization. So uh, wheat's still kind of a desert crop and dedicated more to the, you know, a smaller margin uh, production. But maybe it's going to be an alfalfa or there's some kind of a plant growing up in the Andes we haven't found or... There must be something that we can do to straighten out this uh, rotation problem that we have. And it all reflects back on nutrients and efficiency of nutrients. 
it just uh, is not efficient. And to try to farm your entire ranch in in a in a spring season, that's that's just that's not right. You you need to do it. You need to farm the entire farm over the year. You need to be planting in August and September. Some of the land can be planted then, and then you can move into March and April and Maybe there's a June crop that you can plant, a double crop. That needs to be looked at. It needs to be understood better what it can do. Some of that German-style, you know, uh, farming technique. We did a uh, item maybe 15 years ago, a no-till farmer out of one of the western Canadian provinces. And the farmer had a 21-year no-till crop rotation. I think he had maybe 10 crops, 10 different crops or so, but he had a 21-year rotation he was following. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, quite a dynamic. Yeah. When you look at these no-tillers, what advantage dollar-wise do you think a no-tiller has over someone doing minimum tillage or conventional tillage when the whole season's done and they put their money in the bank? It's a lot. It is a lot of money. Per acre, well, I know personally with our equipment what it is, but just to jump from a tillage design into a no-till design, it's probably around $80 an acre. Mm-hmm. And it's just not saving money on machinery and, and iron and diesel fuel. It's the yields go up, and the, the guys aren't quite getting that, that if you implement um, proper techniques and use fertilizer placement techniques, variable rate site specific, all these little things that have come on, you know, there is up to an irrigated production, it's about $150 an acre. Mm-hmm. That water costs money. Those pivots do not run for free. They are about $120 an acre expense. And I mean, that expense is serious, and each time it goes around, it can be 15 bucks an acre. Right. So you save so many things um, in moisture, weed control, rotational possibilities. It just goes on and on. And if you were um, betting your farm on tillage, now, in my mind, I'm all over the map here in United States, I mean, I just know that you cannot make it with tillage. If you have good times or if you have bad times, conservation pays. It just pays constantly. And if you can move into it, you know, and I know for some guys, they're they're deer in the headlights right now. It just, they're froze at the controls. They can't seem to make the shift. They need to do it. They should have done it, you know, when the, it was highly profitable. Right. Now everybody's just kind of hanging on by their fingernails. No tillers uh, enjoy bigger margins. I just know that. It's about 12 to 15% more net margin right to the bottom line. I think that's the best way to explain it. It's these guys have bigger margins and less risk. And landlords should pay attention, too. I mean, they... They don't like changing farmers left and right like they do in Argentina. They they need a good rock-solid guy in there for about 10 to 20 years, and they need to participate in liming costs and everything else to, to keep that land highly productive for the next gen. Yeah. Well, Guy, it's been fascinating to see what your experience has been in the Palouse and with yielders and your engineering background. 
let's end up on a high note here and talk a little about Mort because at one time he had built what you think was the world's biggest sprayer. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this machine was formulated from two previous machines, and uh, this was in the 60s and the 50s, and Mm -hmm. he was a commercial applicator. And um, he was he was a, just an absolute expert on killing weeds. As he progressed, there was a professor at University of Idaho that had perfected a new chemical that would allow uh, fall application on winter wheat. And he knew he couldn't get out on that really steep ground and hold the mark and, with wheels. Mm-hmm. Even though they leveled the, the machine, it, they couldn't hold the mark. I can remember the day when I saw the first concept of the drive. And uh, it had 20 rollers, 20 track rollers uh, on the bottom side in three sections. So it took 3D6 uh, frameworks to build this motive effort. And so then uh, his best friend was Raymond Hansen, who built a lot of canal machinery in California. And he had these uh, unique constant velocity ball joints that we could implement into it. Mort was so confident about building this machine that he designed it 165 feet wide. Wow. And it, it was 10 rods. It was 10 rods. So you'll, you'd walk a mile, you'd have uh, 40 acres under your belt. So it didn't go fast. It ran about four miles an hour. Had a big engine in it, a uh, giant engine. Uh, it was a Detroit 8V71, uh, and yet it had D6 componentry all through the drivetrain. And it was pneumatically controlled. It, it was all done with air actuation valves and brakes, and it would level uh, way over to about 50%. So it kept the entire machine up on the slopes, and then the tracks actually moved in a parallelogram or a scissors action arrangement. And so they, they actually carved their way around the hill. They, they would bite in on the upper side of the track, and they could go right around the hill and uh, not slide out under these real wet conditions, go right through snow banks, big mud flats, go right across it. You just yeah. you couldn't believe that machine. A motorcycle would get stuck. I mean, there, you just couldn't take the motorcycle, but the big track layer would just walk right through there. So. Yeah. So he had boom section controls on this machine even in the 60s or 70s, right? Yeah, and in fact, uh, there were seven sections, and uh, the booms actually had their own regulators. And so as you got those booms up on steep slopes, they could be 40, 50 feet above the main tractor. And so they actually had a way to adjust the pressures on the upper sides. They all did it automatically. They had a little mechanical means to do all that. So. Mm-hmm. The pre- and the downside pressure was back down, so he could get absolute uniformity. He's the real guy that taught me about uniformity. So sprayers uh, are constantly battling plug tips. You know, you got 130 tips on that machine, 135. Man, they all got to be running perfect. So that uniformity across the width of the machine allowed you to do a perfect spray job. And so he held the ground speed um, right at four mile an hour. He got lots of coverage. He was he was big on coverage. We had uh, 2,500 gallons on board, so we could really uh, tune her up. You know, if we needed more water, we could put it on, and then um, get it into the canopy and control the weeds. And so that meant a lot of trucking going on with water. But in general, in that seven section design, the coverage was phenomenal. 
Right. So if you saw uh, Mort out in the field and an airplane went by, you know, he'd just shake his head. I remember he had a presentation, and he it showed the airplane job, you know, and you could see all the vortices and all the problems with the airplane applications. But, you know, and he was a navigator on a B-29, so he, he knew better. Right, he, right. He's going to keep his feet on the ground. <laughs> well, this has been a great hour of conversation with you, and I don't know of a farm shop any place in America where more unique engineering ideas came out of than the one at Swanson Farms. So, Guy, I appreciate you taking the time to do this today, and uh, thank you very much. You're going to have an interesting story. It's going to be really interesting to our listeners. So thanks very much. Very good. It's a very much fun working with you, Frank. Thank you very much. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. In recent weeks, I've talked with a number of readers who have asked what might happen to the no-till acreage if glyphosate or Roundup ended up becoming banned by the U.S. courts. The consensus is that what I think, and I've talked to some researchers about, is while it might have some impact on no-till, it's not likely to result in any reduction in no-till acres or curb the flow of future growth of no-till. We already have Liberty Link, which is one option that you don't necessarily have to use with Roundup. And uh, Paraquat used to be used, that might come back in, but more importantly, some of the tank mixes can be put together that would probably take care of the problem if we were to lose Roundup. I'm not saying that we will, but we don't know. There are a few new chemistries coming, so it could be a concern. On the other hand, Roundup, as one researcher told me recently, kills more weeds than any other herbicide, so it's important that we keep it. And results of the no-till farmer benchmark study from last spring show that 89% of no-till corn growers are using glyphosate, and 82% of soybean producers who are no-tilling are using glyphosate. So it's a concern, but I think somehow we, it won't affect the future of no-till. Thank you to Frank Lesseter and Guy Swanson for today's conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri, from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillconference.com to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Notel Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>